Pixel Sift is proudly supported by Murdoch University School of Arts. Maybe you want to learn to make your own Twitch channel or podcast and outclass the competition? Does that sound really good? Well, with the skills that you learn uh, in a creative degree in games, sound, film, journalism and much more, it will put you in a class of your own. So go have a look at murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts to learn more about what they've got on offer. So that's murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts. Or you can search Murdoch University for more information. Murdoch University School of Arts proudly supporting Pixel Sift. Hello and welcome to Pixel Sift, the show dedicated to indie games from Australia and around the world. My name's Fiona and tonight is join- joining me is my ho- co-host Mitch. Good morning. Good morning. Good afternoon. What time is it? I don't know. We don't need to know what time it is. It's fine. <laughs> but I'm very excited to be back. I haven't been on a show yes, in forever. it's been a while. Yeah, I thought I was just, I thought I'd just been demoted to playing Apex Legends on Twitch, but <laughs> no, I'm back and I am ready to talk about Australian indie games. So now our guest tonight is Neil Renison from Tin Man Games. Thanks for joining us. Oh, sorry, I hadn't switched you on there. Thanks for joining us tonight. That's all right. I'm still here. <laughs> hello. So, hello. So Neil is here to tell us more about their new uh, VR tabletop game, Table of Tales, The Crooked Crown. But first of all, Mitch, what are we talking about tonight? Yeah, so we'll be focusing on Neil and Tin Man Games in the first part of the show, talking about his experience in making games and where Tin Man Games sits within the Australian games industry. So we'll be focusing on all of that. So that's coming up very soon. Mitch, what's Discord? Discord is an online chat service that most gamers use. Incidentally, you can also use it to talk to us at pixelsiv.com.au forward slash Discord. Yeah, you can talk about uh, episodes, you can talk about upcoming topics, you can probably even coerce Mitch into playing a game with you online. That's not going to happen. That is going to happen. You're doing it. I'm saying that's happening. Sorry. Yeah, well... Join Discord. You should grow your beard back. pixelsiv.com.au forward slash Discord. I hate that promo. Why do we have that? I should delete it from the library. I don't like it. It's so good, though. <laughs> he always plays it, people always play it when I'm on, by the way. Anyway, enough about me and that stupid promo. Um, Tin Man Games is one of the most prolific studios in Australia, and uh, with such titles as Warlock of Firetop Mountain, which Fee and I are very much a fan of. Mm. And we have Neil... Uh, <clears throat> Neil from Tin Man Games. He is the co-founder and creative director at that studio, and um, so I just we'd like to focus on on that studio and your extensive experience in the Australian games industry, Neil. So, how did you get your start in games development? Um, so, yeah, quite a long time ago, um, I was at university doing um, industrial design. I was actually on a degree called product design visualization, and as part, of, I was actually a really rubbish product designer. Um, there was quite a lot of engineering and maths on the course, and I wasn't so great. But one of the things we did do is we did lots of 3D CAD, and I found out I was really good at 3D modeling. Um, so this was sort of back end of the 90s. Um, so, you know, 3D modelers weren't as advanced as they weren't as they are now. Um, and we did a lot of industrial design 3D CAD, which was, you know, pretty dull. Um, but I realized that I could probably turn those 3D skills into something a bit more interesting. And so the games industry was something I was desperate to do. So that's what I followed. And um, what, so when you, once you decided to get into the games industry, what was your, what was your first job in, in the games industry? So, yeah. So 
I had a couple of, uh, I did a, a year out at university at a company in the UK doing virtual reality, would you believe? It comes full circle, right? Um, uh, and that was doing virtual reality for sort of architectural visualization. So I was building lots of... And this was in the, ni- um, in the 90s? or in... It was. It was wow. the first round of VR. Um, you know, Lawnmower Man was the big movie at the cinemas. And <laughs> so VR was, it was really new. And I think the... Um, the bit of kit that we actually had um, in our office, um, the amount of polys it could shift was probably the equivalent to the first Xbox. Um, and it cost like £2 million, <laughs> I think. Um, but it was really, really great. And the, but the important thing for that was I learned how to do polygonal modeling, um, uh, which was obviously really important for games because everything's built out of polygons. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I learned some core skills. And then... Um, when I graduated from university, I went and worked for about 18 months at an animation company doing some 3D Studio Max animation work. Um, and then from there, I actually got made redundant, sadly. But um, I then got my, I guess what you call my proper game, first proper games job, which was at a company in Oxford in the UK called Razorworks. And I started working on a racing game, which was coming out for PS2 and Xbox and PC at the time. But yeah. And uh, so I've got actually a question uh, from the audience. Um, Sarah asks, what was it like to transfer your CAD skills into making 3D assets for games? Was there a lot of overlap or did you have to learn a lot of new things? Um, you, you do and you don't. I mean, ultimately, when you're modeling something, it's all about the tool set. So um, uh, when you're building things out of CAD, uh, the 3D CAD packages back then didn't really do much what I would call surface modeling. So there wasn't many. You couldn't really make organic shapes um, as easy as you can now. Um, so it was, um, you know, that was a, a little bit of a, a leap. But one of the things that I started to use was a piece of software called Rhino 3D, which was becoming quite big. And Rhino was the first NURBS modeler, and NURBS allowed you to create organic shapes using NURBS curves. Um, uh, and then from NURBS, I then did a bit of NURBS in 3D Studio Max. And then with my first games job at Razorworks, um, part of the inviting thing about the job in the interview, they said, so um, do you use Maya? And I said, no, I don't use Maya. And they said, well, if you get the job here, well, you'd probably have to have three months of training on Maya. And I was like, sure, <laughs> that sounds brilliant. You're paying for my training in Maya. Um <laughs> And and it was actually really great because I'd obviously had some experience with Rhino and 3D Studio Max, so actually I picked up Maya really really quickly. I did I did one semester of Maya <laughs> at at university a couple of years ago, and I was just like, yep, this is not the thing for me. I, I couldn't wrap my head around it. <laughs> I don't think I'd be able to wrap my hand uh, uh, head around it either, to be honest. I have almost endless respect for 3D modelers because mm. I couldn't do it. It was it was it was something very outside the realm of my understanding. So how did you go from all of that to creating Tin Man games? So uh, I worked for Razorworks for about three years. and I've worked on a bunch of racing games. Um, and I found I was really quite good at building racetracks and big environments in 3D. Um, and so I went freelance for a number of years. Um, and I actually, uh, I kind of uh, got a bit lucky, I suppose, made my own luck a little bit. And I fell into lots of really big projects working for companies like, like like electronic arts i did a lot of work on like need for speed games i worked on a whole bunch of need for speed games um tiger woods um a bunch of other racing games like uh, race driver and the juiced series and things like that um, and i kind of ran a little art outsourcing company so basically i had a bunch of artists that i worked with and we we would go into a game studio in the uk um and kind of like take a project on for about three to six months um 
and then move on to the next project at another studio, which was really good fun for a few years. Um, and then I, I decided to move to Australia. Um, and around the same time, I was thinking that I was getting a bit tired of making racing games. Um, and the indie scene was starting to kind of get up on the up. Um, I moved out here in like 2008. Um, and so, yeah, I thought, well, it's a new country. I'm moving to the other side of the world. So let's start a new video game company. And that's how Tin Man started, really. So what is the most uh, challenging aspect of game development? Because you've had quite a lot of experience in the bigger game industry with, like you said, Need for Speed. But are those challenges similar to the ones that you face in the indie development? Uh, yes, I guess so. I mean, it's it's a bit difficult for me because I was, I was always a freelance and contractor for those big games. So um, I wasn't actually working at the studio day in, day out. I would sort of come in and work for a few months and then disappear again or work remotely. Um, uh, but, you know, ultimately it's all about, you know, trying to earn money doing the thing you love. Um, I loved 3D modeling um, and, and creating these cool racetracks and environments. And, and, and so it's about being able to pay the bills and build these things. And, you know, running Tin Man Games is exactly the same, you know, the whole team, we all love making games, and the trick is to make games to make money so we can pay the bills. So it's, um, you know, it's the same. It's the same stuff at the end of the day. Um, how has the Australian games industry industry changed since you started Tin Man? Oh, it's changed loads. Um, so Tin Man's been going for like ten years, um, and when Tin Man started, it was about the time of the GFC um, and a lot of the big studios that. That were that had been around for you know ten years or ten fifteen years. You know, they they all went under um, as the exchange rates changed and, and money was investment was was moved out of Austra Australia. Um, and at the same time, there was uh, just uh, a bunch of indies were popping up because obviously a lot of people were being made redundant. And the uh, the canny members of those teams would would go forward and start their own little indie companies. And so. About the same time that I started Tin Man, a bunch of other studios popped up. People like the Vauxhall Agents um, appeared on the scene, um, and a few years later, you had like League of Geeks appeared. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so it was it was a really it was kind of a weird time. It was obviously really sad that the industry had kind of gone pop, and and the big studios had disappeared. A load of people had lost their jobs. But at the same time, it was also kind of exciting. The iPhone had just been released, and the iPad was just being released. And there was, you know, this whole new unity, um, you know, was becoming quite big. So there was lots of opportunity for people that that um, that wanted to to kind of be able to get into to games development. So thanks for watching Pixel Sif, your indie gaming interview podcast, live on Twitch and many other platforms. If you just tuned in, we're talking to Neil Renison about his journey through Australian game industry and about the creation of Tin Man Games. So, how has Tin Man, uh, Tin Man, Tin Man evolved to <laughs> account for these changes in the Australian games industry? Um, well, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I, I'd arrived in Australia um, and I'd started this company, and um, I was actually still doing a bit of freelance and contracting on a few racing games just to kind of, you know bring home the money um but one of the first things that i realized was that we had to get into the iphone the iphone was the big um and uh it, it uh you know it was an easy way to kind of start making games and selling your own games 
And so me and another coder got together and we started making our own little games. Um, and I'd actually made a little bit of money from the last big Need for Speed game that I'd worked on. And so I kind of invested that money. And uh, yeah, we, we used all that money up and the games didn't sell anything. <laughs> so uh, I kind of had to get back to the drawing board a little bit because um, I had lost quite a lot of money very quickly. Um, and so one of the things that I tried to do was look at what sort of games could work on the iPhone that nobody else was doing. And also kind of going back to my childhood and seeing, you know, what I could kind of like like extract from my childhood, which I enjoyed playing that might work on these new touchscreen mobile phones. And one of the things with these uh, choose your own adventure books called fighting fantasy that I used to read in the 1980s. And I thought, Oh, these would work really well on, on phones and tablets. And, um, and so, yeah, we, we, we started making those and I got a bunch of writers in a bunch of artists and we started creating these kind of uh, choose your own adventure, RPG solo D and D apps um, for iPhone um, and then from there, we actually signed a few years later, went on and signed uh, the actual Fighting Fantasy license. And so uh, we kind of then led into the whole licensing thing, um, which we've kind of been doing ever since. So you, so you signed the license, so you now have the, the IP to make interactive versions of those stories. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's where Warlock of Firetop Mountain came from. So uh, Warlock of Firetop Mountain was actually published as a, a game book in 1982. Um, and, uh, you know, what, had ha- what happened was is that we'd released a bunch of these apps on Android and iOS, and then we started to release them on PC. And it was about time for us to start working on what is the granddaddy of the series, Warlock of Firetop Mountain. It's the one that started it all, really. Um, and I, I felt like we, should, we needed to do something different. The sales of our apps were in decline a little bit, um, the market was moving on very quickly. You had other companies doing similar stuff to us that were, quite frankly, doing it better. Um, so we kind of needed to sort of like come up with some ideas to try and shift things up a gear. Um, and so we decided to turn the Walk of Firetop Mountain, this humble little game book from 1982, into this crazy interactive board game, choose an adventure thing with miniatures and dice and, and, and stuff. Um, and it was really exciting. It was a really important moment for us as well because it 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 moved us out of being just a, a small mobile app developer into actually creating uh, what I, uh, you know, games which are a bit more um, cl- you know a bit closer to uh, our AAA cousins, I guess. Um, and so, now yeah. you've just been running. You've just gone over ten years of running as a company, which is pretty amazing that you started out from more AAA titles came into the indie developers and then you've been running for 10 years after you've taken off from mobile games. Did you have any 10-year celebrations? <laughs> um, we didn't actually uh, very much. We had, I had a very, uh, uh, we had one of the companies in the arcade, Samurai Punk, who worked with us on Table of Tales. Uh, they gave me a, uh, a nice bottle of whiskey. Um, <laughs> uh, and I think we went out for lunch. It was really nice. Um, but yeah, so <laughs> we, did, we didn't celebrate as much. We have a bit of a joke in Tin Man in that we don't ever have time to celebrate anything because running a small indie studio, we always have to have multiple projects on. So when a game finally does get released, we're too busy working on the next thing to, to have time to celebrate the thing that's just out. Um, uh, so we've had that recently with Table of Tales, obviously, is released this week. And, you know, we've all just been really busy working on the new project. Um, but I have 
promised the team that we're going to go out at the beginning of May for a proper dinner and, and do it properly this time. <laughs> so, but it, even then, it's got to wait a few weeks before <laughs> we get a few deadlines out of the way. Nice. So maybe one last question before we move on to our interview about Table of Tales. Um, what are some of the myths that you might like to bust when it comes to making games? Like, What, what, what do you think people often um, don't understand about making games? Um, how tough it is, really. It's hard making games. They're complex things. Um, they're some of the most complex pieces of entertainment that you can make. Um, there's it's like a clash of all these different skill sets and all these different people with all these different um, ways of looking at creating something interactive. Um, and you've got to, all these people have got to come together and create this beautiful thing that you as a consumer want to go and play. Um, and that is a really, really, really tough thing. Um, you know, because somebody who, who likes maths as into programming uh, is sat opposite somebody who likes painting pictures and wants to make something beautiful and and getting those two skill sets together and making them work to, to, to become the thing that you play is really really tough <laughs> yeah so we've talked a bit about your past team uh tin man games past but why don't we move on and find out more about your new game table of tales mm. the crooked crowns that'll be in just a moment pixel sieve it's not pixel sieve it's Pixel Sift. Pixel Sift! I don't like that promo either. <laughs> I'm just playing all the ones you don't Why? like. It's playing all the ones I hate. <laughs> <laughs> well, tonight joining us is uh, Neil Renison, co founder and creative director of Tin Man Games. And he's here to tell us more about the new game Table of Tales The Crooked Crown. So you can embark on a narrative driven campaign featuring a fully voiced dungeon master. Cam, um, companion, could you tell us more about this amazing game? Yeah, gosh, table of tales. So, um, I, I guess I always start by giving the original pitch because I think that sets it up quite nicely. Um, the original pitch to Sony was um, what happens if you take the movie Jumanji, um, mixed it with Dungeons and Dragons, and threw it into VR. Um, so, the whole idea was being able to take uh, a tabletop RPG board game um, and actually bring it into virtual reality and be able to um, play that that game in VR and move the pieces around and roll dice and do all the things. Um, the difference with Table of Tales is that what we do is we actually bring the table to life. So when you're playing Dungeons and Dragons with your friends around the table um, and you've got your GM who's drawing the map out on, you know, on the graph paper in front of you and moving the, the miniatures around we all do we do that heavy lifting for you and we don't just do the heavy lifting we actually bring it to life in a beautiful way so the table will actually shift and change in front of you to actually build the environments where you will um do combats and and, and go on adventures um and not only that we also have a, a games master as well that joins you on the adventure and she is arbitrary she's a, a mechanical talking bird flies around the table, narrates the story to you, tells you off sometimes, um, uh, and, and uh, yeah, takes you on this amazing adventure. Definitely one of my favourite characters awesome. I discovered last yeah. PAX. <laughs> yeah, the bird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we love Arbitrix. She's great. So tabletop role-playing games seems to be a, a common concept at Tin Man. So what is your connection to role-playing games and that style of gameplay? 
Oh, gosh. Um, so uh, I used to play D&D a lot as a kid. Um, and I used to be a dungeon master. And I had to, on a Thursday night, my mum's, my poor mum's dining room table would be infested with loads of smelly children as we all rolled dice and scratched it up, probably. <laughs> um, um, and weirdly, that, 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 that D&D sessions, I actually designed my own fantasy world. Um, and then, funny enough, that fantasy world is the actual fantasy world in our Game Book Adventures series, which was the, the, the series which started our apps in the first place. Um, so there's a bit of a connection there. Um, so yeah, so I've been playing role-playing games for years. Not I haven't played in recent years, sadly, because I have children and things, so <laughs> it doesn't really lend it. But maybe I'll be able to play soon. Um, but yeah, and, and obviously fighting fantasy books um, were, were really big as a kid, which are basically solo D&D. Um, so I think, yeah, that's the DNA of the company. It's adventure games, it's tabletop RPGs, it's choose-your-own-adventure game books, it's all that stuff. So there's a lot of history and legacy within role-playing games. Um, what do you include and what do you leave out of your games? Um, well, you've always got to think about the delivery of whatever the game is. Um, so it, with Table of Tales, for example, um, you know, one of the things we couldn't include um, is we couldn't include your friends sitting around your, the table with you. So it is a solo RPG experience. Um, uh, but we could include lots of other things within that, which which we can, such as dice rolling and you know having miniatures moving about and turn-based combat. We've even got like a card system in there where you're playing abilities on your on your your miniatures and stuff. So um, so again, and we just look at the game that we're creating. We're looking at the audience. We're looking at the platform that it's created for. We we craft that game to work in that particular situation. Was it always the plan for a VR game? Well, absolutely. Oh yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. I mean, after finishing the Warlock of Top Mountain, we we needed a new project to go on to, and we'd obviously wanted to do another kind of board game. Um, and I knew at the time that uh, VR was on the up. Um, I had a very good chat with uh, a bunch of the platform holders, and in particular Sony. Um, and that was the pitch to them. I just straight up, they, they, they knew what we'd done with Warlock of Firetop Mountain. The, the guy that we were dealing with at the time was a big fan of the Warlock of Firetop Mountain 2, which helped. He was also a big <laughs> fighting fantasy fan from his, when he was a kid, which, again, helped. Um, yeah, and we just went straight in and just said, look, we've just got to make this in VR. This, is, this has got to be a, a, a title for PlayStation VR. It's going to be amazing. And it is. So, yeah. <laughs> what challenges came with making VR? Because I can imagine that it's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, lots of challenges. I mean, we had to learn a whole load of new tool sets. Um, it's, it's a very different experience when you're in a virtual world um, interacting with, with things. Um, for, for a good example is UI. You, all of a sudden, which is the user interface, you, the buttons you click on, the things that you do, all of a sudden, you don't really have that anymore um, because you know it, you're actually within the environment. So, what do you do? How do you how do you tell players to to play an action? How do you you know tell players to take a turn? So you, we have to come up with novel ways within the 3D environment to actually uh, let players interact with the world. Um, so, yeah, that's that's really tough. Um, and also, the other thing with with VR is that um, 
you don't want to make people throw up. <laughs> That's a really important thing. Um, so, you know, design of, of how people interact in that world, but also frame rate for the, for the, the, the you know, the, the platform that you're working on. Frame rate is super important um, because, you know, if you drop a few frames on a PC game and the game slows down for a couple of seconds, it's it, okay. It's a bit, uh, it's a bit rubbish, but it, it's not going to do much damage. Whereas if in VR it slows down, the frame rate drops. All of a sudden, you're thrown into chaos. You, 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 you know, your brain can't handle it. So, so it's you know, it's really important to to manage that well. So, if you're just joining us on one of our live platforms, we're talking to Neil Renison from Tin Man Games about their new digital tabletop game called Table of Tales: The Crooked Crown. Now, would you be interested in making any more games in VR after this one? Uh, yes, we're going to have a bit of a break. <laughs> with We've done a lot of VR recently. Uh, I would love to do more VR. Um, and hopefully if Table of Tales does really well for us, then, you know, it's Table of Tales, The Crooked Crown, which basically means, you know, we would love to do more Table of Tales. The, the table's got many pl- uh, plenty more stories to tell. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I think there's, there's lots of opportunities. Um, although the next project we're working on that we're working on at the minute isn't VR, um, but isn't a million miles away from Table of Tales, but I can't talk about it, sadly. No worries. Um, so Sarah's got another question uh, from the uh, stream chat. Uh, what was the biggest challenge when making Table of Tales? What was your biggest hurdle? Biggest hurdle? Um, uh, it's, that's really tricky. Um, basically trying to punch above our weight. We knew we had to create something pretty amazing. Um, we have a small team. Um, and I, one of the things that we did to, to fix that was we teamed up with another indie studio. So there's another studio here in Melbourne called Samurai Punk. Hey. Um, you probably know them. Quite we know well. them. <laughs> we like them. <laughs> yeah, they're yep. great. So very early on, we teamed up with them. Um, and we were actually still, when we were pitching for Table of Tales, we were actually still working on Warlock of Isaac Mountain. So we were still trying to get that release. This is that overlap that I was talking about earlier where we've always got the next thing we're working on. So um, a lot of the programmers that we were for our team were all um, tied up working on Warlock. And also we were doing, uh, we had a, another a couple of apps, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries and Choices That Matter, which are some other games that we were producing at the time. Um, so all the programmers were all tied up doing those projects. Um, so Samurai Punk very graciously built a... a, a a demo for us which we used to help pitch the game um, and then those programmers actually stuck with us for the rest of the project and so we kind of like we stole a couple of their key team members for a couple <laughs> of years um, and so this is very much you know it's a Tim Man Games game but you know there's a lot of samurai punk in this game too so so um, what when you're Building a very story-driven game, even one that has multiple ways of going about the story, what what comes first? Does the story come first, or does the do the mechanics come first? Um, I would normally I would probably say the story, um, going off of our previous titles, because um, our you know we were basing our apps and stuff basically on these two joint adventure books. But with Table of Tales, very much is very different. The story obviously was really important, but all the other things that I talked to you about, like the usability, how the game plays, whether it's fun, you know, somebody being alone in a VR world, you know, all that stuff we had to think about 
as well as the story. Um, so the story came a little bit later, and we actually hired a really great writer called Ben McKenzie, um, who does uh, a stand-up uh, a stage show called, I think it's called Dungeon Crawl, um, which he's been running for years, where he stands up on stage and he runs a live D&D game for laughs um, and gets people to play with him. And we thought he would be great to, to write the, the, the story and design the world for us, and he did a great job. So, but yeah, it kind of, it, 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 it was a different kind of project it kind of came i'd say about a third of the way through the, the development so this game also features a fully voiced dungeon master or game master was it difficult mm. doing that when the choices in the game affect the story um not really as long as it, uh, you know it was really well designed um so the script was really tight and so all the choices that were that you make in the story um, you know, they, they were all written out and, and planned. I mean, it wasn't always that that uh, that easy, um, but uh, on the whole, you know, we we had everything planned out. So when the, the the voice actor was ready to record her lines, we we had the full thing ready to go, and then um, uh, we were able to kind of like piece it together um, at, at the back end. Had to. It wasn't always clean sailing. I know <laughs> a KG who did a lot of that work. He um, uh, yeah, he, he he had to do some clever stuff to make some sections work because we we had like last minute changes. We had to cut some levels at uh, the eleventh hour for various reasons, um, and so you know we had to change some of the, the narrative. But overall, it, it was that's kind of the way it worked. So one other question: you said you had to cut some levels there. Would you ever be interested in? maybe releasing those levels down the track or something as a side story? Yeah, we've actually talked about that. Um, it would be great. Um, the reason we cut them is because a bunch of reasons, um, mainly because they weren't fun. Um, they weren't, they didn't fit the story so well. So we kind of, um, we, we, we felt that it was better to put time into the other levels that we had in the game, um, which happens a lot in game development, you know. Um, the game that you end up playing is, is isn't the isn't you know the complete thing that, that, that the developers had in mind from the beginning. Very rarely, um, but yeah, look, some of those levels visually they looked amazing, um, and look uh, with a bit of time and spit and polish, they, they, I'm sure they'd, they'd be great to play too. So you never know; they might they might turn up at a later date. Um, see how well the game does. <laughs> So finally, the soundtrack is really impressive. I was listening to a little bit beforehand. Uh, was that a group effort, or was that just one person doing all the music? Yeah, it was a. As one guy did did all the composition. Oh, wow. um, yeah. So his name was Michael. He was really great. Um, uh, and we had actually a sound designer on board as well. That kind of uh, he dealt with all the co the composer and the voiceover artist, and did a lot of the sound effects for the game. So. We kind of had that 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 one person kind of seeing the stuff all the way through, um, and then KG, who was also putting together all the the, the VO and you know tying everything together, um, dealt with um, getting all the sounds working and making sure everything worked in the way to make it exciting and, and fun for the player. So. Well, it's now available on PlayStation VR, so if you like tabletop games or role-playing games, you should definitely give it a shot. Otherwise, you can check out their website at tinmangames.com.au or head on over to Twitter, uh, and their handle is at tinmangames. So thanks for joining us mm. on another episode of Pixel Sif. Thank you very much for joining us tonight, Neil, and telling us more about 
the table of tales, the crooked crown. No worries. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. So this episode has been hosted by myself and Mitch. Thanks for joining me tonight, Mitch. Hey. (laughs) Back again. And uh, it was also produced by Mitch Lowe, Scott Quigg, who's behind it with the producing today, and executive producer is once again Gianni Di Giovanni. So we wouldn't have been able to make it to 119 episodes of Pixel Sift if we didn't have the support of Murdoch University. So you can check them out and tell them we sent you if you're keen to learn more about a great creative degree. So you can go to murdoch.edu.au forward slash arts. And then as always, we'll be sticking links to the topics that we talked about in the show notes on our website, www.pixelsift.com.au. And uh, if you would if you would like to join us on Discord, um, we'd love to have you there. Um, we have a PixelSiv server. Um, you can reach that at pixelsiv.com.au forward slash Discord, where you can share your creative work, talk about the topics, and sometimes talk to the developers that we featured on the show. Um, that's pixelsiv.com.au forward slash Discord to chat to all of us. And if you'd like to, please tell a friend. Um, if, if you like what we do, we don't pay to advertise. We rely on word of mouth for people to find the show. So our next episode will be on the 2nd of May, and if you join us at this time next week, it'll be Pixel Sift Plays, where we'll be playing some one of the many indie games that we feature on our show. So that's all for this week. Uh, thanks for joining us. We'll catch you next time.